So this can be uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41, for a sermon I've entitled, Sinners Convicted and Converted. Why don't you follow along as I read? It says this. <laughs> Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who were, uh, had received the word were baptized, and they uh, that day... And there were added about 3,000 souls. Most speeches that are given are heard and quickly forgotten, but some leave a lasting impression and a few become historically significant. In preparing for my message today, I came across an article from the National Constitution Center entitled, Looking at Ten Great Speeches in American History. I wonder how many of them you'd be familiar with. Patrick Henry, he gave a speech to the Virginia Convention in March of 1775. Those gathered were considering breaking away from Britain. Speaking without notes towards the end of the speech, he said this, The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Washington's first inaugural address. In part of that speech, he said this, There's a truth more thoroughly established than there exists in the economy and course of nature an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage, between genuine, genuine maxims of honest and magnanimous policy and solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. In other words, you cannot have national prosperity without having personal morality. If a people become corrupt, their nation is doomed. Frederick Douglass in a message called The Hypocrisy of American Slavery in 1852. He was invited to speak at a 4th of July celebration in Rochester, New York. Instead of talking about the celebration, he addressed the issue dividing the nation. He said this, I will in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call into question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery. And Douglas knew what he was talking about because he himself was a former slave. Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. The best known of Lincoln's speeches was one of his shortest. It lasted only two minutes. He started with the words, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In 1896, Democratic presidential nominee William Jennings Bryant gave his famous cross of gold speech. Now, America was on a gold standard at the time, and Bryant believed that uh, the dollar should be backed by silver as well, which would uh, help the debt-ridden farmers and break the power of the eastern bankers. In one dramatic moment in the speech, he said this, We shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying, You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify man upon a cross of gold. FDR's first inaugural address, 1933. The new president spoke of the, to the nation, which was gripped in the midst of a depression. 
He said this, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. 1952, before the presidential election, Vice President nominee Richard Nixon was in trouble. There was accusations that he had misused campaign funds. Now, the Republican leadership was actually thinking about replacing Nixon on the ticket, so he went on television to defend himself. He said that none of the money he ever received was used for personal gain. His wife, Patricia, didn't own a mink coat. She wore a respectable Republican cloth coat. But he did admit that they received one personal gift from the donors. It was a black and white cocker spaniel that his daughter named Checkers. And regardless of what come, people say about it, we will not give it up. It became known as the Checkers speech that turned his career around. JFK's first inaugural address. The most famous line from that speech was when Kennedy said, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what your, you can do for your country. Hmm. Martin Luther King, Jr., I Have a Dream speech. It was delivered at the Lincoln Memorial on August 1963 in front of 250,000 people. In one part he said this, Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, and so even though we face difficulties today and tomorrow, I still have a dream, a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream today. 1987, President Reagan, standing near the Berlin Wall, addressed the free world, but also the leader of the communist world. He said, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, it's interesting because that was not written in his speech originally. It came in the moment. Now, all those speeches were historic, and some of them could be called moving and even powerful. But none of those speeches was as historic, moving, and powerful as the sermon that was given by Peter in Jerusalem on Pentecost. For that sermon, empowered by the Holy Spirit, resulted in the conversion of 3,000 people and the establishment of the Christian church. The well, last time we were together, we considered the content of Peter's sermon. This week, we want to look at the results. Sinners convicted and converted. That's what we want to see in the text today. So why don't we pray and get into it. Our Father and God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we look at the text. Speak to us, even as your Spirit spoke through Peter to the people on the day of Pentecost so many years ago. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look in the text, there's six things that we see related to the conviction and conversion of sinners. And the first is this, the charge leveled. The charge leveled. And that's going to be verse 36. Now, after stating that Jesus' death was part of God's plan and his resurrection and enthronement in heaven was prophesied in the Psalms, Peter drives home the inescapable conclusion in verse 36 when he says, Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you had crucified. You see, in the resurrection, God had put his stamp of approval on Jesus' sacrifice for sins and declared him to be Lord and Christ. Jesus is indeed both Israel's Messiah and Israel's God. So these people, his own people, were guilty of regicide and genocide, killing their king and killing their God. You know that charge of being the Christ killers is one that's been hurled against the Jews for centuries. In Europe at various times and various places, 
Jews dreaded the arrival of Good Friday, for it might bring riots and mayhem yet again. And while the Jews today cannot be held accountable for Jesus' death, the Jews that Peter was speaking to that day were certainly complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus. But what's interesting is you go through the book of Acts is that, and through the epistles, is you'll find that the Jews are not so much castigated for the crucifixion of Jesus as their failure to believe after the resurrection of Christ. You know, God would have forgiven Pilate even, who ordered Jesus' execution if he would have repented and believed. But God cannot and God will not forgive anyone who refuses to believe in his son's death as a sacrifice for sins. If you go to your grave without trusting in Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you will most certainly perish. That brings us to our second point, though. The question asked, verse 37. Have you ever heard of the Great Awakening? That was a spiritual revival that took place in America shortly before the Revolutionary War under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. Now, when a person's awakened, it means that they come to realize the spiritual danger that they're in. They're jolted out of their death slumber, and the awakened person feels the terror of the law of God, the dreadful position that they're in as sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Peter's listeners were overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, And knowing God's righteous standards, they knew they were under his judgment as well. So they cried out. Now when we see, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the hearts, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Listen carefully. Preachers can present the truth of the gospel, warn of its dire consequences for the listeners if they don't respond. But no preacher, no matter how cogent his arguments, impassioned his appeal, or forceful as delivery, can pierce the heart of an unbeliever, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting the sinner of their guilt, no listener will ever cry out in anguish, Brethren, what shall we do? Charles Finney was a Presbyterian minister and an evangelist who took part in what was known as the Second Great Awakening. That happened in the 1820s to 1830s. Now, Finney believed that every sinner had in themselves their own ability to turn from their sins and believe in Christ. They just needed to be persuaded to do so. He said this, A revival is not a miracle or dependent upon a miracle. In any sense, it's purely a philosophical result of the right constituted means. If you just use the right tools and the right techniques, you can convert anyone. Well, what were some of those tools and techniques he thought we should employ? One was a good marketing strategy. He said you have to market the gospel. Second was, you had to have protracted meetings, protracted meetings to increase the psychological pressure. In other words, to keep them going longer and whip people up. Number three, coming out of that, you have to maintain an emotionally charged atmosphere. The evangel- he said this, the evangelist must produce excitement sufficient to induce the sinners to, uh, to repent. And the last was what he called the anxious bench and altar calls. You brought people up front who looked like they were under conviction. He would speak right at them. And then he would call on people to come forward at the end to show they were making a decision for Christ. Do some of these things seem to still go on in our churches today? Now, in my opinion, it was a lot of emotional manipulation. And though Finney was praised in his day for his innovative methods of evangelism, which resulted in a large number of so-called conversions, Finney himself came to realize that these conversions were spurious and faulty and fake. 
They whipped up the listener's emotions, but they never pierced the heart. Isn't that what we have in a lot of our churches, especially our mega churches today? Rock concert worship services with light shows and smoke machines? People in seats are audiences who've come for a show. They're not sinners overwhelmed by their need for forgiveness and a desire to be reconciled to God. Peter's listeners were under great conviction, and so they cried out, Brethren, what shall we do? That was the question. Now look at the answer given. That's our third point. Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember when the Philippian jailer, after that earthquake where Paul and Silas had been singing songs of praise to God, and there was an earthquake at midnight, and he was going to kill himself, but he said, no, no, don't kill yourself. We're all, all the prisoners are still here. And he came in, he threw himself at Paul's feet, and he said, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But here, Peter, when he was asked by these people a similar question, said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. But Paul also said in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, some pastors, in what's known as the free grace movement, argue that what's required, and only thing that's required for a person to be saved, is simply to believe, to agree with the facts about Jesus. I mean, mere knowledge and agreement with the gospel is all that's required. I remember sitting in the college, the Christian college that I went to, where I got my degree, and I was in a class on doctrine. And one of the young ladies, one of the fellow students of mine in the class was actually the daughter of one of the professors at the college. But the class was being taught by another professor. And I remember they got into an argument. Does a person have to repent in order to be saved? And she was arguing, yes, you have to repent and believe. And the teacher, who was a fine teacher in many ways, said, no, you simply have to believe. Repentance is not required to be saved. Well, she was right and he was wrong. The first words of John the Baptist's message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. When Jesus began his ministry, his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. What does it mean to repent? Well, the Greek word metanoia literally means to change your mind. To repent is to change your mind about God and who he is, the Holy One, and you and who you are, a guilty transgressor, and what sin is. Not a delight to be indulged in, but a defiling filth that you should turn away from. I think about how can anyone be saved apart from turning away from their sins? You can't turn to Christ without turning away from sin. So to be saved, you have to repent and believe. But it's interesting because Peter here speaks of repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Let me ask you a question. Is baptism required for salvation? Now, there are some churches that teach what they call baptismal regeneration. They assert that a person receives salvation in the Holy Spirit when they have water poured over their head as an infant or as an adult. They point to verses like this one to substantiate their view. I mean, should you be baptized when you become a believer? Yes, after you become a believer, not before. Do the waters of baptism wash away sin? No writing to the Corinthians who had divided themselves into factions in their church, Paul was rebuking them about it. He said this in 1 Corinthians 1, 12 to 17. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm for Paul. 
I'm for Apollos, I'm for Cephas, or I'm for Christ. And then he rebukes him and says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say that you're baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also of the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized others or not. Listen to this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in the cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, think about it. If baptism was the means of salvation, then Jesus certainly would have sent Paul primarily to baptize. But he says, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel. So the way you're saved is by believing the gospel, not by being baptized. And I have to put something else in here. It seems that every form of Christianity has a substitute for genuine faith in Christ. So if you're Catholic, you say, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized and I get the Mass. I eat the wafer, I ingest Christ. If you're Lutheran, you say, I'm going to heaven because I'm not Catholic <laughs> and because I was baptized and I was confirmed. If you're a Southern Baptist, you say, I'm going to heaven because when I was 10 years old, I raised my hand when the preacher said, with every hand, eye closed and every head bowed, raise your hand, just slip it up if you want to follow Jesus. Or perhaps you walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. Now, it's possible that a person can get saved under some of those circumstances, but notice what happens in all these things. What they're trusting in is not Christ, but their decision to trust in Christ or some act that they did, some substitute for the real thing. You can't trust in your baptism to save you. You have to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. You have to turn from your sins and believe in his death as the payment for your sin debt. After that, you should be baptized as a public testimony to what God has done in your life. That brings us to our fourth point, though. The encouragement offered. This is verse 39. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here comes the encouraging part. He says, For the promise, meaning the promise of the Holy Spirit and salvation, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call to himself. Now, this is a verse that Presbyterians and Reformed people just love to quote. Both of those denominations do practice infant baptism, but they don't believe that the pouring water over the head of the child causes them to be saved. But they say, nevertheless, it does bring them into the new covenant so that they're not saved, but they're still part of God's people in some sense. They hope and have confidence that the children of believers, God will eventually work into the hearts, in the hearts of these baptized children and bring them to full faith in Jesus so as to be saved. I can't tell you how many times I have heard or read it quoted, for the promises for you and for your children. But they stop at the first part of the verse. They don't finish it. What does it actually say? For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, meaning Gentiles as well, as many as the Lord, our God, will call to himself. Peter's not saying that if you're a believer, God promises to save your children. He said that God promises to save as many of the children that you have as the Lord will call to himself. Now listen carefully. We should hope for and pray for God to eventually call all of our children to himself. Whichever ones are among the elect, God will indeed in time bring. I mean, the promise to Abraham and his descendants was not to all of his biological sons, but to the ones that God had chosen. And it's the same today. Now, we want to teach our children well. We want to encourage them. We want to warn them. We want to pray for them and plead with them to repent and turn from their sins and believe in Christ. 
But the Holy Spirit alone can make that message pierce their heart so that they will believe and be saved. Now that's your encouragement if you're a Christian when you're witnessing and doing evangelism at school and among your family and friends and neighbors. If we give the gospel and pray for it to take root, it will indeed lead to the conversion of those that God has chosen for salvation. Our job is to sow a little gospel seed, plant it deep within their heart, cover it with prayer, and water it with L-O-V-E. And then remember what it says in verses like Psalm 126, 6, where it says, He who goes to and fro, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It says in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Peter not only gives an encouragement, though, he also issues a warning. That's our next point. A warning issued. That's verse 40. It says this, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Remember, Jesus spoke that way of his countrymen. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and yet no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so Jesus would be buried in the earth for three days. But like Jonah, he would come back from the belly of the beast, death as it were, and that happened at the resurrection, which was the ultimate sign that he was indeed Israel's Messiah and Israel's God. You know, it's interesting, it's not just the Christians and the New Testament writers who speak of that generation as being an evil generation. Do you know that even the Jewish rabbis in the Talmud, looking back, said that was a particularly evil generation? Now, they didn't say that because they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, but because it was during that generation, as a result of their rebellion against the Romans, that the city of Jerusalem was sacked, their temple was destroyed, and the people were dispersed throughout the world. So even they agreed that it was a perverse and wicked generation. Now, there's a sense in which we could talk about any generation in any country as being perverse generations. But wouldn't you have to say that in America, at this time, that's a particularly apt description? The state of Minnesota, where some of you live, just passed a law guaranteeing the right to kill your unborn baby up until the moment of birth. Colorado and California are working on bills or pass them that will allow you to kill the baby after it's born. We're taking young girls and boys, mutilating their genitals and pumping them through full of hormones. We let perverted men do drag shows, and I can't even describe the things that go on. And they're done at public libraries. Our tax system is a form of theft, organized theft. Our politicians are crooks. Our judges ignore the laws and rule on their own authority. Our country is heading for hell in a handbasket, and many of the elites are cheering it along its demise. What Paul said to the Philippians applies to us as American Christians as well when he said this, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Well, finally, we see the results being provided. The results provided. 
You see, a preacher can prepare a sermon carefully, preach it clearly and powerfully, but God is the one who determines the results that come from the message. And as it says in Isaiah 55, 10, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know, my sermons go out over the radio station EZ-104, 70 miles every direction from the transmitter and shell lake. Hundreds of thousands of people can potentially hear it. Sermons that Chris and I preach on Sunday mornings go across the globe. They've been listened to over 35,000 times in 80 to 90 different countries. Round and round they go. And whose hearts they pierce? Only God knows. Our job, your job as a Christian, is to get the gospel out. God's role is to decide how he will use that message in converting sinners and building up saints. Sometimes the results seem meager. Sometimes there's little fruit that comes, at least initially. Sometimes we sow, and it's somebody else who's going to come along and reap. Paul said one plants, another reaps, but God's the one who gives the growth. Well, here God brought tremendous growth on this day. Look what it says in verse 41. So then, those who received received the word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You know, for the Jews... Pentecost also uh, commemorated the giving of the law. Do you remember when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were down in the valley breaking all of them? God was angry, and as a result, a number of the people died that day. Do you know how many died that day? 3,000. The law brings about the death of sinners because it condemns us. The Spirit brings about life, eternal life, because he opens our eyes and pierces our hearts so that we trust in Christ for salvation. Let me ask you this. Has he done that for you yet? Have you seen your sins for what they are? Rebellion against your creator. Have you seen Jesus for what he is? The son of God sent by the father to be the savior of the world. If you're not a believer, but even now you feel God speaking to your heart and calling you to Christ, come. Simply turn from your sins, acknowledge that you violated his commandments and offended his dignity, and trust in Christ as the payment for your sins. Receive it as a gift. If you were to do that today, you would look back in the years to come and say, well, for me, the most historically important speech I ever heard was a sermon on Peter's sermon at Pentecost. For just as the Holy Spirit pierced the heart of Peter's listeners that day, so he did to me. And I receive forgiveness for my sins in Jesus' name. May the gospel be the power of God for salvation for you as well. There is no other message. There's no other good news. There is no other gospel. Believe the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and God, can it be this simple? We're sinners under your wrath, but if we just turn and ask for a pardon based on Jesus' death on the cross 
and his righteousness imputed to us that we can be forgiven and free and reconciled to you and have eternal life? That's an offer too good to be true, and yet it is. That's an offer too good to be refused, and yet it is. What could it be but blindness and love for sin that would keep people from coming to you through your son? Father, we pray for the people sitting here today, some of whom don't know you, that you'd work in their hearts. Don't let them leave today and lay down their head tonight without knowing that they know you. We pray for those who are going to be listening over the internet, those who are going to be listening over the radio. Lord, we don't know whose hearts you'll change. We may not even see it until Judgment Day, but we're praying that you keep your word and honor your promise that your word will not come back void, and we know that it won't. Help us who are believers, Lord, who get frustrated and disappointed and such meager results sometimes to realize that in the final analysis, all the elect are going to be called in. And we will be rewarded not only for those who get saved under our ministry, but even for those who perish under our ministry because their hearts were hard. Bless us to believe the gospel and the power that it has. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.